God completed his assault of the gods and religious faith of Egypt by striking down the firstborn son, that is, the inheritor of every household in Egypt. The recollection of the prophets of Israel continues in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 through chapter 12, verse 41. Now the Lord said to Moses, One more plague I will bring on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will assuredly drive you out from here completely. Speak now so that the people hear, that each man is to ask of his neighbor and each woman of her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Furthermore, the man Moses himself was greatly esteemed in the land of Egypt, both in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord says, About midnight I am going out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones, all the firstborn of the cattle as well. So there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. But not even a dog will threaten any of the sons of Israel, nor anything from person to animal, so that you may learn how the Lord distinguishes between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants of yours will come down to me and bow themselves before me, saying, Go out, you, all, and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he left Pharaoh in the heat of anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh. Yet the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the sons of Israel go out of his land. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are, each one, to take a lamb for themselves, according to the father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. In proportion to what each one should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to slaughter it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall completely burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this way, with your garment belted around your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and fatally strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the human firstborn to animals, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will come upon you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now in verse 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. But when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you shall keep this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord, your, the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this right. 
And when your children say to you, What does this right mean to you? Then you shall say, It is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord, because he passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshipped. Then the sons of Israel went and did so, just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh got up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship the Lord as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. The Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in a hurry, for they said, We will all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the, cl- in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Therefore they plundered the Egyptians. Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough, which they had brought out of Egypt, into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had no yeast, since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel had lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on this very day, all the multitudes of the Lord departed from the land of Egypt. The royal family of Egypt was intimately intertwined with the mythology and religion of ancient Egypt. At the center of this royal mythos was the relationship between the god Osiris, his wife, the goddess Isis, and their son, the god Horus, along with Horus's divine male nursemaid, Bess. We discussed Isis in episode 7 and Horus in episode 10. God's final plague against the ancient Egyptians was against the heart both of their society and of their religion, the household divine, royal, and common. Richard Wilkinson has described the divine household of Osiris and its relationship to that of the pharaoh in the following way. Osiris was unquestionably one of the most important deities of ancient Egypt, figuring prominently in both monarchical ideology and popular religion as a god of death, resurrection, and fertility. As time progressed and the cult of Osiris spread throughout Egypt, the god assimilated many other deities, and rapidly took on their attributes and characteristics. Many of the titles and epithets applied to him also reflect the god's nature as a funerary deity, which, if not original to Osiris, certainly became central in his identity. An important development of Osiris, however, which went beyond his basic identity as a resurrected god and ruler of the underworld, was the role he played as judge of the dead. In the pyramid text, Osiris is of primary importance as one of the three most frequently mentioned deities along with Horus and Re. It seems clear that once Osiris began to rise to widespread importance, the priests of Heliopolis incorporated him along with certain other deities into their own theological framework. The Osiride legends thus incorporate Osiris' siblings, Isis, Nephthys, and Set, as well as his son Horus, and represent the most extensive mythic cycle in ancient Egyptian culture. 
In their developed form, the core myths were preserved by the Greek writer Plutarch in his work Deisede et Osiride, where essentially it is claimed that the god once ruled Egypt as a king until he was murdered and cruelly dismembered and scattered by his jealous brother Set. Due to the loyalty and dedication of his wife Isis and with the help of their sister Nephthys, Osiris was found and revivified and became the god of the netherworld. Horus, the posthumously conceived son of Osiris and Isis, avenged his father's death by defeating Set and in time became the king of all Egypt as the rightful heir of Osiris. This story had great appeal both as a theological rationale for the Egyptian monarchical system in which the deceased king was equated with Osiris and was followed to the throne by his Horus successor, and also as a story which proffered the hope of immortality through resurrection, which had a universal appeal and was claimed at first by kings and eventually by nobles and commoners also. Although Osiris was incorporated into the Heliopolitan theological system at a relatively early date, the god continued to grow in importance, and by New Kingdom times his stature as an independent god was considerable. Osiris' position became, in fact, comparable to that of the sun god himself. He came to be regarded not only as the counterpart of Ret in the netherworld, but also in some cases as the sun god's own body, so that Osiris and Ret came to be considered as representing the body and soul respectively of a single great god. The fusion of the two gods was mainly a product of New Kingdom theological expression in specific contexts, and the Egyptian theology never totally overcame the dichotomy implicit in the ideas of Ret as Lord of the Heavens and Osiris as Lord of the Underworld. And now for Bess. The name Bess, perhaps from the word Bessa to protect, is a relatively late term used to describe what are really a number of deities and demons of Egypt, perhaps not all originally related, though all of similar form. Perhaps ten separate gods, Aha, Amam, Bes, Hayet, Iti, Mefjet, Menu, Segeb, Sopdu, and Tetennu, share similar if not identical characteristics, making Bes a complex and not always clearly understood figure. Despite his appearance, which changed in many details over time. Bess was deemed beneficent to humans, and he was accepted by all classes of Egyptians as a powerful apotropaic deity. He was especially associated with the protection of children and of pregnant women and those giving birth, and often depicted alongside Tahoret in this role. God's plague against the firstborn of Egypt was an assault on the entire divine pantheon of Egypt. Throughout this series, we have encountered various gods and goddesses of fertility and procreation and healing and even resurrection. All of these beings, if they were indeed the gods the Egyptians took them to be, might have cooperated to undo this plague of the God of Israel or to fend off his avenging angel. However, under particular assault was the power and legitimacy of Pharaoh himself, as his claim to the divine right to rule was intertwined with the royal household of the god Osiris. By striking down the firstborn of Pharaoh, God was declaring both Pharaoh's authority and the authority of the gods he and his family were thought to embody, hollow and illegitimate. By striking down the firstborn of every household in Egypt, God was revealing the impotence of Pharaoh and of the gods of Egypt to stand against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When the firstborn of Egypt died, the poverty of Egypt's religion and the impotence of her gods were exposed. There was nothing left to Pharaoh with which to refuse this God. Time and time again his gods had failed to protect him, and now even the highest of the gods of Egypt, Re, Amun, Horus, Osiris, and Isis, stood helpless before the God of Israel. 
So Pharaoh not only released the Israelites, but he pleaded with them both to go and to speak words of blessing on him. The Egyptians, too, were so anxious to make peace with the God of Israel that they gave the Israelites anything they desired as they went out. Which god of the West is akin to the ancient Egyptian gods of the royal household, Osiris, Isis, Horus, and Bes? Even in the West today, these gods are worshipped much as they were in ancient Egypt. As in Egypt, this god of the West is still the god of the household, the god of the home, the god of family. The household has been the cornerstone of civilization since the dawn of recorded history. Rules and regulations regarding marriage, procreation, family structure, and inter- and intra-family relationships are found in every still-extant legal code yet discovered. In the days of Jesus, the Roman household code was foundational for the indoctrination of Roman citizens and Roman vassals into the Roman way. The Roman household code provided a general societal structure of relationships that extended from the nuclear family to the household to the state, and it ensured that one's proper relationship to the state was indoctrinated from childhood. The household code was so pervasive in the Roman Empire that the writers of the New Testament adapted it as a template for discussion of the proper relationships within Christian households and even within the broader household of faith, that is, the church. The integrity of this institution historically has been essential to the health and stability of societies and to the ongoing indoctrination and formation of children and foreign peoples into active and compliant societal participants. To say it another way, historically the household has been the primary vehicle through which the ethics and values of a culture have been lived out in the present and preserved into the future. It is perhaps of no surprise, therefore, that the household, which today has often been reduced to the nuclear family, continues to be worshipped as a god. Continued societal conflicts over the legal definition of marriage, the legal rights of fathers, mothers, children, and the unborn, the legal rights of minors, the legal responsibilities of parents in the upbringing of children, the legal authority of government to intervene and or to limit or direct these responsibilities, all continue to evidence the pivotal role this institution plays in our society. And these conflicts also continue to evidence the lengths to which our people and governing authorities will go to instill within the home the values we wish to be embodied in future generations. To control the family is to control the future. To educate and indoctrinate children is to assault the future. The spiritual forces of evil know this, as do those in our culture who wish to ensure the continuation of their beliefs and values in perpetuity. None of this is idolatrous in essence. In fact, the institution of the Feast of Passover itself in the verses we read earlier was intended to preserve the knowledge and instruction of God within the culture of Israel. As much as the Passover commemorates God's victory over the gods of ancient Egypt, the requirement of its perpetual commemoration serves as God's assault on the future as well. The orientation of the Israelite household to the worship of God is at the heart of the Law of Moses, as we can observe in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1-9. through The scriptures say this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, so that you may do them in the land where you are going over to take possession of it, so that you, your son, and your grandson will fear the Lord your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. Now Israel, you shall listen and be careful to do them, so that it may go well for you, and that you may increase greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your father, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. 
and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart, and you shall repeat them diligently to your sons and speak of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the road, when you lie down and when you get up. You shall also tie them as a sign to your hand, and they shall be as frontlets on your forehead. You shall also write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So when does the family, the household, become an idol? The family comes to be worshipped as a god when it or the members therein become priorities over the claims God has made on his people. It was in part against the God of family that Jesus spoke when he said in Matthew chapter 10 verses 34 through 39, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I came to turn a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be the members of his household. The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and the one who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life will lose it, and the one who has lost his life on my account will find it. Perhaps a brief exploration of the tale of the high priest Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas might illustrate the worship of the idol of family. First, Eli was from the tribe of Levi, and according to the law given through Moses, members of the tribe of Levi were to serve as priests and caretakers of the tabernacle, and later the temple. Even more, Eli was high priest, which means he was part of a particular household of Levites, the household of Moses' brother Aaron. Only descendants of Aaron were to serve as high priests. This is the promise and prophecy that shaped Eli's and his family's lives. Eli's children would have been informed of this perpetual promise and responsibility from their earliest days. They would have spent their childhoods preparing to fulfill this familial call. The household of Aaron was tasked by God with preparing and forming every generation of priests in Israel for as long as the nation existed. And yet somehow, Eli's sons had been malformed. The tale begins in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were useless men. They did not know the Lord. And this was the custom of the priests with the people. When anyone was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was cooking with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and everything that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. They did so in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. It's probably important to note that 1 Samuel does not appear to have critiqued the practice described in these verses. The specific charges against Eli's sons are yet to appear in the text. However, already we see that the regular practices of the priests were not in accord with the covenant of Sinai. According to the book of Leviticus in chapter 7 verses 28 through 36, the priests were to receive the breast and the right thigh of sacrificial animals. And in Deuteronomy, chapter 18, verses 3 through 5, it also includes the shoulder, the jowls, which are the cheeks, and the stomach. In any case, the covenant of Sinai stipulated what parts of the animal should be claimed by the priests. Priests in this time, apparently, just stuck a fork into the pot and claimed whatever came up. Perhaps this seemed pious to them, essentially allowing God to choose, in each dip of the fork, what he wanted reserved for the priest. It's impossible to reconstruct what led to this routine violation of the covenant. Whatever its origin, this lack of faithfulness to the covenant represented one of a series of steps that led the priesthood of Israel away from God and from faithfulness to him. From the incident with the golden calf at the foot of Mount Sinai under the leadership of Aaron, 
to the fall of Eli's family in our present context, the high priests of Israel failed to place their households under the authority of God and his covenant. In the case of Aaron, he submitted to the people by making for them an idol in the form of a golden calf. In the case of Eli, as we'll soon see, he submitted to his children, ultimately ultimately making them objects of worship. The priesthood was so important to the covenant of Sinai, and the priests so pivotal to its enactment and interpretation, that in many ways the priesthood became of more practical importance to both the priests and the people of Israel than God, or his covenant. The survival of the household of Aaron became more important than the God who they were tasked with worshiping and serving. This resulted not only in the corruption of individual priests, but it also cultivated an atmosphere in which God's people were routinely misled and abused. The story continues in 1 Samuel 2, now picking up in verse 15. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take cooked meat from you, only raw. And if the man said to him, They must burn the fat first, then take as much as you desire, Then he would say, No, but you must give it to me now, and if not, I'm taking it by force. And so the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord disrespectfully. And then skipping ahead to verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why are you showing contempt for my sacrifice and my offering which I have commanded for my dwelling? And why are you honoring your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? It seems to me that Eli and his sons had come to understand God's promises to their families as absolute, and therefore believed that nothing they did could compromise their position in Israel. The accusation of the man of God in verses 27 to 29 appears to have been that they defended their evil with the promises of God. At some point, they had come to understand their special election as priests, as licensed to do as they pleased. It began with unilaterally deciding simply to stick their forks in the pot, and Eli's sons had extended the priestly authority to include the pre-selection of choice pieces of meat and fat prior to the burning of the sacrifice practices which were specifically prohibited by the covenant of Sinai. Whenever a household or a family unit becomes conflated with the will of God, it becomes an idol. Rebellion against God's teachings is not allowable for anybody, irrespective of their power or positions. To be God's people or God's servants is not to expect special treatment, special mercy, or special benefits not allowable to others. It would appear that these priests used their special election by God to insulate them from correction or judgment. And this practice of using God's promises to justify wicked behavior is not unique to the First Testament. Even in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 confronted people who were using the gospel message of salvation apart from law to justify living in open sin as Christians. Rather than raising his children in a household that taught them to submit to the covenant and serve God and his people in diligence and humility, The household of Eli had embraced the values of superiority, elitism, power, and prerogative. In this way, the roles, responsibilities, promises, and blessings of the household of Aaron, originally given to them by God, became idols. Eli and his sons worshipped the promises God had made to them, 
but they did not live in submission to God's teachings. Even more, Eli valued his children more than he did God. In this way, Eli had come to worship his children as idols. As God asked Eli through the man of God from Judah, Why are you honoring your sons above me? The story continues in 1 Samuel 2, now picking up in verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he heard about everything that his sons were doing to all Israel, and that they slept with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why are you doing such things as these, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one person sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a person sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Eli's lack of diligence in properly educating his family early on left him very little ability to discipline his sons when things got worse than he could justify. By the covenant of Sinai, Eli should have had his sons put to death for their transgressions, as the sons of Aaron had been put to death by God for sacrificial mismanagement in Leviticus chapter 10. But Eli's family had been worshipped for too long. He was old, he was compromised, and he loved his children more than his own faithfulness to the Lord. I suppose Eli should be commended for at least confronting them about their sexual harassment and abuse of the women who served at the temple. But to Eli's great and lasting shame, the text does not reveal he took any other action. Given the slipshod way in which sacrifices were handled generally, it's possible that Eli did not even realize what the covenant of Sinai required him to do in response to his son's evil. He may have honestly believed that a verbal rebuke would be sufficient. But no such pleas of ignorance or anything else spared Eli and his family when God's judgment came. The life of the family always worships something. Nations and governments make constant appeals to families to worship the state under the guise of patriotism. Businesses and institutions make constant appeals to families to prioritize their products, their events, or their interests. Religions do the same. Families can together come to worship any of the gods of the West that we have discussed in this series. The most common are the god of nation, the god of religion, the god of nature, or the gods of science and medicine. But more commonly, the family worships itself. Family first, after all. This is the idol of family, and in the example of Eli, we observe its most familiar form, the prioritizing of children over the requirements of God. How did God confront this idol in the household of Eli? The recollection continues in 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning now in verse 17. And so the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord disrespectfully. And then skipping ahead to verse 30. Therefore the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father was to walk before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be insignificant. Behold, the days are coming when I will eliminate your strength and the strength of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. And you will look at the distress of my dwelling, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and there will never be an old man in your house. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. And this will be the sign to you which will come in regard to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he'll walk before my anointed always." 
and everyone who is left in your house will come to bow down to him for a silver coin or a loaf of bread, and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices so I may eat a piece of bread. In the case of Eli, God found a way to be faithful to his promises while still allowing judgment to fall on Eli and his family. This behavior of God is not unprecedented in the First Testament. For example, when the Israelites sinned against God by worshiping the golden calf, God said that he was going to destroy them and raise up a nation out of Moses. Now, of course, Moses begged God to act otherwise, and God relented. But in that case, as in this one, God's promise to Abraham would have been fulfilled whether the chosen people came from Moses, who was a descendant of Abraham, or from the wider ancestry of Jacob. Submission to Jesus and following him is more important than any aspect of our families. This is why Jesus taught that his gospel would likely bring division among households. The call to follow Jesus and worship him only is absolute. For those who truly follow Jesus, no other love surpasses this love, not the love of our traditions, our legacies, our solvency, or even of our children. This is a lesson taught painfully through Abraham's call to sacrifice Isaac, through the execution of Aaron's sons in Leviticus chapter 10, and through God's judgment of Eli in our present passage. The God of family is an idol like no other, because it is within the home that many a person has conflated their love of family with their love of God, failing to distinguish the one from the other. It was the God of household that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who became flesh in the person of Jesus, assaulted when he struck down the firstborn of ancient Egypt. And God is assaulting the Western God of family again today. For each permutation of the worship of the Western God of family, God is bringing judgment. Because we have sacrificed the unborn in the womb for the good of the family and of the future, God is bringing sterility, even on those who desire offspring. Because we have sacrificed the worship of God for leisure and entertainment, God has divorced himself from our worship, leaving only entertainment behind, allowing the vacuum to be filled with false gods and false prophets masquerading in his name. Because we have failed to shape our households and to educate our children in the fear of the Lord, God is filling the hearts of our families with other fears, manifesting as depression, anxiety, and all other maladies of spirit. Because we have worshipped our children as gods, God is allowing, allowing disdain to grow in the hearts of children, so that the worship of their parent, that their parents have bestowed on them will not be returned in kind. Because a spouse demands that the other worship and adore them as one worships and adores a god, God is refusing both to hear our prayers and to grant our requests. Because we've led our families into allegiance to the gods of the West, God is now including us in his assault of those false gods. For those who desire to follow Jesus, the challenge that Joshua placed to Israel before the conquest of the land of Canaan in Joshua 24, 1-15 is now placed between, before you and your household. The scripture says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel at Shechem, and called for the elders of Israel, their heads, their judges, and their officers, and they presented themselves before the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates River, and led him through all the land of Canaan, and multiplied his descendants and gave him Isaac. To Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and to Esau I gave Mount Seir to possess it. But Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. 
Then I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt by what I did in its midst, and afterward I brought you out. So I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And Egypt pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. But when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and brought the sea upon them, and covered them. And with your own eyes you saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness for a long time. Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and truth, and do away with the gods which your fathers served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As God assaulted the gods of ancient Egypt, so God is assaulting the gods of the West today. As God freed the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, so God is awakening his remnant and freeing us from our bondage to the false gods of our age. But we must choose to forsake these false gods and these idols and learn again from Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Heed the call of God. Awaken followers of Jesus. God is assaulting the false gods of our time to free us before the end. Repent, for the kingdom of God nears.